And the idea has been to try to really think through and study what is going on in the Bible after the resurrection of Jesus. Because as I said before, in our culture, what tends to happen is we celebrate Easter and then everybody kind of goes back on their normal road, whatever it is they're doing. But when you read the Bible, there's some pretty profound things that are happening after Jesus's resurrection. And so we have been studying the stories that followed his resurrection. And today we're going to continue to study a passage of scripture about Mary Magdalene and John 20 verses 11 through 17. And there was a sub-reference in John 17 we're also going to look at this morning. I'll explain why here in a moment. But the reason we're still talking about this text is because this story, much like the story of Doubting Thomas we studied a few weeks ago, chronicles one of the many times Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection. And what is very important for us to note is how people responded to him. That's what's great about this, is that it's a pretty powerful passage where people are interacting with the risen Jesus. And in each instance, he is helping them to understand a new facet, if you will, of the fact that he's risen. There's there's a, a transformation happening in the way that we actually relate to God. And so this episode between Jesus and Mary in John 20 is another concrete validation of how Jesus makes good on his greatest promise. That after his resurrection, those who would personally believe in him and what he did, what he did on the cross, those people are going to be offered this amazing opportunity to dwell in his presence forever. And that presence certainly takes place on earth, and it has a a very significant after effect. Meaning life, this is what we're going to talk about today to a degree, life in Jesus is what the cross represents. It's what his resurrection represents. It's what it is meant to give us. And so life begins in Jesus on earth, but there's this eternal aspect to it also that Jesus talks about quite a bit before his resurrection. Now, this is the main truth. This idea we've been talking about over these past weeks has been this this sort of crisis of faith that Mary has. She has this inability to believe the promises of Jesus. And what happens is she is blinded to the fact that he is actually working in her life. That is the root of her crisis. We talked about that at great length, three different examples. Those messages are online. We're going to move away from that today. With that behind us, here's where I'm going this morning. I think it's somewhat natural for us to ask the question, why are we still studying the same passage with Mary since we sort of addressed all of the major issues in that passage? Well, there is one small note here that I think is often overlooked that is very worth discussing, very much worth discussing. There are two little verses in this passage that follow this main idea, this this great crisis of faith that Mary has, and then she has this opportunity to kind of recast her love and affection on Jesus. She is renewed in her faith. And after all this is happening, there's this profound set of verses that people just skip over. They they communicate something very deeply to us that is worth studying today. Something about how we interact with, understand, and apply God's truth. And in many ways, it sort of gives us the responsibility that we have to God's truth. It's an action step. We might even consider it sort of a defining close to this story of faith and doubt. And I want to look at it today, and I want to reread John 20, verses 17 through 18 to you, because here is where we find what I want to talk about today. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. This we discussed last week, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to Mary and your father, to my God and your God. Then Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, these two verses here are perhaps the greatest evidence in this passage that Mary's faith was renewed in Jesus. What's funny about this passage is all the questions always revolve around what Jesus meant by don't hold on to me. That was addressed last week. But what we're going to do today is look at what he was releasing her to do. This profound evidence that she deeply believed 
that it, what he said was going to happen. She went from this place of crises about the resurrection to actually affirming it. And now he begins to talk about his ascension. And her actions show us that her doubt is no more in this moment of her life. Robust faith is once again what is driving the motives of her heart. Now you're probably asking, since I've been teasing it for two or three minutes, what is the action I'm talking about here? Well, her experience with God is so profound that it causes her to go and tell others about the experience she had with God. That is one of the main driving truths of this story. She has an experience with God. God does something profound in her life. And then she is compelled at the command of Jesus to go tell others about it. And here is why I want to look at this today. Throughout the course of the time that I have been in ministry, and I'm sure that if you have been a Christian for some time or just observed the rhythms of our world, this is going to make sense to you. I've noticed something about the way we as people and our culture at large desires truth, the way we consume truth or knowledge. In our part of the world, when we think of truth or facts, it's just super common to see people sort of get the facts. They want to know something. They get the facts and then they move on to another set of facts that they want to acquire in life. It's sort of jumping from one fact hunt to another fact hunt, which is why I mentioned to you a moment ago about the do not hold on to me passage. If you look at sort of the history of Christian preaching here or sort of what's talked about the most, that is like a super large nugget of that text. And oftentimes these little things that are taking place in our passages can sort of blind us to the larger reality of what God is driving at. And so the accumulation of truth oftentimes for a great many people is valued more than a deep-seated meditation on truth. We want volume as opposed to deep interaction. And this practice has shaped the way a great many people look at the Bible and study the Bible. So what I'm saying here is, is in our culture, we tend to consume truth and then move on from it rather quickly. While the path of a disciple is one where a person is supposed to imbibe truth, like soak it all up, press into truth, wrestle with truth, and then live in light of truth. It's not meant to be something we know and move on from. It's meant to be something that we know and then press deeply into. And that's what these verses show us here. It wasn't just that everybody got their questions answered at that moment of crisis in front of the tomb, and then they moved on to their next event in life. That's not at all what's happening here. And if you think about it, we're going to try to parallel this story. Last week, we got all the facts. We truly solved the riddle. We answered all of the major questions that Christianity present to us here in this passage. What's going on in the passage? Why is Mary doubting? How does it affect her life? How does God work in our life to help her overcome doubt? Why does Jesus tell Mary she can no longer touch him? We hit all the big stuff. And so it would make sense that we just move on. But that is not what John does. John sort of end caps this with something very significant. In fact, the rest of the Gospel of John uses these stories of people overcoming doubt to show us one of the main signs that we've had a very deep interaction with God, that we very much believed in Jesus is when we go and tell others about that experience we've had with him. That is the driving close of this passage. And today we're going to look a little bit at what Mary is telling people. Simply put, it is the important truth of how we are to have eternal life. The whole idea of what is happening here is the fulfillment of Jesus' greatest promise, to redeem us and give us everlasting life with him. Yes, I agree. That's a pretty substantial statement, right? That one of you at least likes (laughs) The promise of everlasting life is so foundational in the Christian faith. It is so significant to Jesus' teaching and his ministry. It's a belief so central to everything he did and the quality of our lives that he talks about it regularly while he is alive and dies on the cross so that we can actually have it. In the verses we're looking at today, Jesus commissions Mary to be one of the earliest evangelists in the Christian faith. 
That is, to me, what is one of the most significant truths here. It isn't just that people understood or saw what was happening. They actually now were being charged to go and tell people about it. She is one of the first people charged with spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus, of what he did literally in this passage, overcame the grave and was resurrected. And so today, I want to make sure we all understand what that news is. What is it Jesus is telling her to share? And we begin by looking at John chapter 17 to do just that. It is there that we sort of find Jesus being most clear, most powerful in his words about what the cross and his resurrection is meant to provide for us in life. One idea I want to share with you today. When we truly experience the power of Jesus' resurrection, we should desire to share it with others. We really should desire to share it with others. And that is what is most sort of ironic about the holy days in the Christian calendar. These these moments we have throughout the year, Easter and Christmas, I've referenced each week, they tend to be high points that people then fade away from. But what we see here time and time again is that these are high points that are meant to lead to higher points in life. They're meant to sort of be the inaugural step in what it means to live a life that is abundant in Jesus. And in John 17, verses 1 through 2, Jesus says this. I'll reread this to you so you see the framework we're coming from today. After Jesus said this, keep in mind now this is before his death and resurrection. One of the last conversations he has with his disciples, he says, uh, John tells us that he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, in John 17, Jesus tells us everything he did, everything he said on earth was done for the purpose of this hour. The cross, resurrection, Easter Sunday, all of that is the aftermath, the great aftermath of this hour. And this figure of speech is one that we see a lot in the Gospel of John. It is one that Jesus talks about. It's one that uh, John notates regularly. And we hear more about this hour as Jesus draws closer to the cross. He regularly refers to this, this time when his hour would come. And even says here that it is for this hour that God sent him to the earth. So it's pretty clear that there is some connection, a deep one, between this hour and eternal life. The promise here in this passage. And this is because Jesus' hour refers to this period of time when he is no longer under the care and the protection of his Father in heaven. John tells us in multiple places that there were times when Jesus was going about his business And the masses or the Pharisees or some other group of people prematurely tried to take his life. They wanted to throw him in prison, get him off of the scene. They wanted to remove him from the earth. But time and time again, we see that the person who is in control of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is God himself. So while people might want to interact with his hour or they might have tried to adjust it, that hour took place when God was ready for it to take place. When Jesus was ready to go to the cross, that's when it happened. And so his hour is a very small statement for something very profound about Jesus' life. It signifies the time when God volitionally hands his son over to be crucified, when the world is at its worst, and they take his beloved son for no good reason. This is what Jesus is referring to here before his crucifixion. Because in a few hours, according to this timeline, he's going to be crucified. And it's really a self-reference to his painful and impending death. And so my, my first thought here when I read this is, why does Jesus give us something so meaningful? Why does he talk about something so vibrant, eternal life, connected to a statement that is so painful? 
Wrapped up in this painful realization of his hour, Jesus draws this sharp contrast. He immediately connects and makes us a beautiful promise filled with hope. Because of his death, we have life. It's the promise that because of his hour, he's going to be glorified. First, he tells us what's going to happen. He's going to be glorified. And through that glorification, because of that hour, he is going to be able to offer the world eternal life like it has never been seen before. He's going to be able to offer the world restoration with God, the forgiveness of sin. He's going to be able to give that to the world. And in order to really understand and appreciate this life-death connection that Jesus makes here, we have to explore why Jesus says what he says. Because everything he's saying here is what he is telling Mary to tell others. Tell them what you've seen. Tell them what you've heard. Tell them what you know. And the rest of the New Testament is the reality of what happened when people did that. Every book in the New Testament, even the book of Acts, which chronicles a lot of things going on in the movement of the church, it's all the reality of what happened when people did what Jesus tells Mary to do in John 20. And so it's super important that we understand what he's saying here and why. His words teach us something very beautiful but painful about eternal life. While the gift of eternal life is a beautiful promise, it has a very hard-edged implication attached to it. It's sort of a gift with pointy edges. That's the way that I like to describe it. And here's what I mean by this. I want to share an illustration, and I'd like you to do your best to sort of put yourself in this story. Let's just say that at some point in your life, and this is true for some of us here, you are diagnosed with a very serious illness. And for the sake of this illustration, we'll use cancer because it's an unfortunately common one that just about every person on earth has had an experience with, whether it is personally a family member or a friend. Cancer is, un, is, is all too common in our world in a very sad way. Now, having cancer, okay, is already hard enough to deal with. Having that disease is very challenging. It's life-threatening. But as you know, in our world, just having cancer, that is a, that's a job in and of itself, having to deal with that. But there's a secondary job connected to that. To deal with cancer, you have to have insurance and doctors and all kinds of things. It takes a ton of money. The burden to deal with that burden is substantial. And for a great many people, it breaks them. So keep in mind, in this story, you are diagnosed with a serious illness like this. And complicating matters is that you have no insurance. You, you literally have no capability to have this corrected in your life. You have a life-threatening disease. You have no way to cure it yourself, obviously. And you cannot afford the care required to deal with it. Without question, we would all say that's a pretty grave situation. Hopeless. But then out of nowhere, somebody hears something about you. Uh, the word spreads about your lack of ability to deal with this. And someone you've never met before gives you a call and says, hey, I've heard about your situation and I, and I would like to meet with you. And you get together with them for a cup of coffee. And when you get together, they sit down and they say, hey, you know, I he I've heard about your cancer, but I just would like you to tell me your whole story. Go ahead and share with me what's going on. And so you do. You go through it all. You share the physical challenges. You share you don't have the ability to, to have a, a medical care provided for you because at this point you're without insurance. You go through the whole thing. And throughout the course of this, you recognize just how overwhelming this is. And it's pretty fair to say that at that junction in life, many of us would be wondering how we could even get through this or overcome it. And this person who hears this, you recognize immediately, is incredibly compassionate. And they hear your story. And they give you some really good news. They say, listen, I do this a lot. You're just the person I'm at the table with today. When I hear these stories, I always try to intervene. I try to make a difference. And this guy says, you know what, I'm a retired billionaire. You probably don't know this, this about me, but I am. And I have more time and money than most people know what to do with at my disposal. And I want you to know that people, when they talk to me about this, they're always feeling this way. They're feeling alone and outcast without hope. 
But he goes on to say, I want you to know that I'm, I'm going to help you with this. And so we ask, well, how are you going to help me with this? Rather naturally, that'd be a pretty you know, good question to ask. And this guy says, listen, no matter what your cost, uh, what your care costs, I'm going to pay for it. Every dollar for the rest of your life, not just for the first time, but if you go into remission in 10 years and it comes back, I'm going to pay for it again. My commitment to you right now is I'm going to take care of every financial burden cancer puts on your life. And you naturally would start to say thank you, but they don't stop there. They interrupt you gently, but interrupt you and they say, hey, um, I'm, not, I'm not done yet. Hold your gratitude here for a moment. They say, look, I also know that it's going to be impossible for you to manage your life when you're sick like this. So I'm also going to assign to you a team of people who will manage all of the things you have to deal with just to get the care. They'll make your appointments. They will pay your bills. They will drive you around. They will make sure you have a place to sleep. They'll shop for your groceries. At this point, when you hear this, you are overwhelmed. Like the speech is kind of overwhelmed. And you look at this person and you start to thank him again. And you begin to say something like, at least for those of us that recognize the nature of this gift, we would say something like, thank you so much. I'm going to do everything in my power to pay all of this back, even if it takes the rest of my life to do so. And this person hears that statement and again, in a gentle way, interrupts that statement and says, hey, you're missing the point here. Uh, I don't need you to pay me back. I don't even want you to pay me back. I, I have no need for your money because I have more than what I can do with. And they go on to say, that's not even why I do this. Like, I don't do this to put people in debt to me. My delight is not found in putting you in bondage to me. My delight is found in freeing you from this. My delight is found in freeing you from your suffering. My joy is not in the fact that I'm waiting for you to pay me back. It's in the recognition that you cannot pay the debt. That's what makes me happy. That's what gets me going. And that's what I want to do for you. And he goes on to say, look, you are not the first, nor will you be the last person I help like this. The only thing I ask of you, one thing I ask of you, is that when you come across other people, when you get to this place in your life where you are healed and you recognize the care and support you've received, when you see other people suffering like this in the same way, you let them know about me. You tell them about me. You let them know that you know it's hopeless, but there is somebody that not only can help, but will help. So my question to you is, do you accept my gift, period? Not paying me back, do you accept my gift? Now, we'd have a decision to make here, right? And obviously, if we were in our sane minds, we would accept that gift. Because in this situation, if we did not, our alternative is a certain death. There's nothing else that goes down that other road but death if you let cancer do its thing without intervention. And my point in this is this. This kind of a gift would be an amazing one. Some of us have stories like this in our life of people who, in incredible and sacrificial ways, did something for us. In this story, this would teeter on the miraculous, like a gift from heaven. That said, as amazing as this gift is, the gift carries with it a profound and deeply hard edge. You're getting this gift. This gift exists. The work of this very generous person only exists because we live in a world where people get sick. That's what I mean by the cross. What Jesus teaches us here is that we get this amazing gift, a miraculous gift, but we need the gift because there is a pervasive sickness in our world. The same is true, this analogy, pound for pound transfers, when we understand the gift of eternal life that Jesus offers us. The fact that Jesus says in John 17, my father has given me the authority to give you, he's talking to the people that were in his audience then, and the rest of the world, to give you eternal life, it implies something very dire about the state of people's souls. It implies that at some point in life, we begin, we begin life spiritually dead. 
There is a sickness in our world, bankrupting humanity, robbing people of joy, and the scripture calls it sin. It is a controversial and hard-edged truth that Jesus tells us time and time again. And then he gives us this remedy time and time again, that eternal life is found in him. So simply put, Jesus is an amazing and costly gift. It is, it is sort of like, imagine God being the, the generous gentleman in this passage, and he offers you the abundance of his, his son's wealth and care, everything. He offers that to you. That gift is amazing. And it has to be that amazing because of the serious nature of what it is meant to correct, the illness of sin. So this truth, right, is central to our faith. But it is often seen in our modern culture as arrogant and arcane, oftentimes because we don't accurately represent this. Sometimes we don't articulate it clearly. Sometimes we have misunderstandings about it. And sometimes the reality of recognizing that sin exists in our world is just a truth people don't want to hear. Whether we like it or even agree with it, if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, if we believe the cross addresses what Jesus said it did, if we believe Jesus' resurrection is the final gift he gave us on earth to once and for all deal with all of the sickness of sin, then we have to affirm this truth. In fact, in my illustration, this is the emphasis I'd like to look at today, it would be downright crazy to reject it because it leads to death according to Jesus. And furthermore, think about this. If we do receive it, if we do recognize the nature of it, if we recognize the profound generosity of God to, to give his son for us, if we really, really believe that, we would be really, really out of sync with Jesus if we didn't sense the responsibility we have to go and tell it to others in the same way. It would be like us saying, hey, thank you for healing me, and I'm now going to not tell anybody about the great work you've done in my life. Right? We, we could almost say that that's somewhat selfish. And this, this situation here, this sort of pervasive sickness in our world, this is where all people who deny this truth find themselves. To varying degrees, they are spiritually dead, and they just don't know it. I like to say this, and the scripture sort of alludes to this, that dead people don't know they're dead. That's part of the problem here. We don't know we're dead until God opens our eyes to it, and that's what the cross is meant to do. Physically and theologically speaking, this makes perfect sense. The reason the Bible uses the word dead is because deadness is unaware of anything going on around it. Listen to how Paul describes this in Ephesians 2.1. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. He's making this contrast here that there's a line of demarcation between death and life. And there's a new way of living when we find life. That's what the cross is meant to give us. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to think about here. That he, he wants every single person to know this, that everything he did was done so that we would wake up and find life in God. Now this teaching, hard edges and all, is meant to encourage and compel the hardest hearts to believe. And a natural question arises from a, from a passage like this. Maybe you're saying, because I know I asked this question, how can you say that you know, the Bible calling me spiritually dead is an encouragement to me? How is that at all like good? Or how is that supposed to bring me joy? Well, what I would say here is what Jesus would say. It's because when we understand this, it shows us just how much we matter to God. When you recognize that somebody wants to care for your physical illness and they're with you to the end, there is a compassion that exudes from that. The person is reminding you, you are very ill, but I am here because I care for you. The same is true with Jesus Christ, his cross, and his resurrection. This the, the sweetness, we might say, of these hard edges is that it time and time again reminds us of the value and the worth we have before God. 
Now, this belief, like many of the other more challenging beliefs in the Bible, will always appear to have hard edges at first. You cannot truly celebrate Easter without the recognition of these edges. And this is especially true if you are dead like Paul talks about in Ephesians or like Jesus is talking about in John 17. In fact, sometimes when we are numb to God, we can be offended by these things. These statements that are meant to be grace or gracious, they're meant to lead us to life. What happens is they, they are so hard for us because we are so resistant that we can't actually see the good in them. However, if Jesus works in your life, when you permit him to work in your life, when you invite him to work in your life, Jesus makes you alive. And those hard edges have the ability to turn edges into grace that God begins to use for his glory and his good. You recognize the bittersweet nature of the promise, but the sweet nature of the promise at one point begins to trump the bitter nature of it. Because to have life in Jesus is so much better than to have death. It's also fair to say that if, if someone on earth took care of you in this way, this generous way in the illustration, you would likely be so overwhelmed by that act of love and compassion that it would compel you to want to share that love, care, and concern with the other people in your life that suffer in the same way. And that, my friends, is the point of this whole message. This is how we're going to wrap up today. We'll touch on this again next week in a different way, but I want you to hear the driving impetus of what we see here at the close of this text. The whole point of this sermon and I think it's really fair to say one of the main ideas of John 20, this interaction between Mary and Jesus, is not just that a woman with great faith came across great doubt and then Jesus renewed her faith in such a way that she had great faith again. It's sort of like this seesaw here. That's part of what's happening. But what's also happening here is that she is so overwhelmed by this reality that Jesus tells her, you have to go and tell this now to other people. And immediately the text tells us, she goes to the brothers. She starts telling people what he's done. She starts sharing the reality of what Jesus has done. Here's why this is tough for us sometimes. And I say this with a lot of empathy. I also say this as a person who at times is in the same boat. Over time, it can be very easy for us to just reduce the extraordinary nature of what Jesus has done for us to just a simple season or for a great many people, just a simple day, Easter. And while we might see God's gift like that, what is important to know is that God does not see his gift like that. It was not meant to be a one-time opening. It was meant to be sort of a gift that is continually passed on to the people in our lives. And that's why the first thing Jesus tells Mary to do when she realizes who she's speaking to. Remember what we talked about last week? She realizes now Jesus is not a gardener. This is the risen Jesus. She's speaking to the resurrected Jesus. She's speaking to the Jesus who wrote life over the word death. She's speaking to the Jesus who wrote life over the word sin. She is speaking to the Jesus now who is no longer in the tomb, but is standing outside of it. The guy who overcame the grave and offered us healing in life in only ways that he could do so. She knows now who she's talking to. And the first thing Jesus tells Mary to do is, you can't hold on to me like this. You've got to go away from me and start telling others like this. In other words, let what I have done for you now drive what you do for other people. And John spends the rest of his gospel writing about what happens when God's people obey that command. And the book of Acts, which follows the book of John, is the narrative of how people told the story of Jesus to different faces and places in the world. It's no secret that we read Acts right after the four Gospels because what happens is, is after Jesus gives these commands to this early band of believers in the first century world, those folks get on fire for Christ and they start taking this message to the rest of the world. And it starts changing the world wherever it goes. It meets opposition and it meets persecution and it meets all the challenges Jesus promised them it would meet. But at the end, it continues to spread and grow to this very day in a far more thorough way 
The rest of the New Testament chronicles the story of how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection continued to bring life and light to the hearts of men and women. When, key statement, God's people were faithful to oblige these simple sentences that Jesus gives his early followers in these passages. What is the command? I say it again. Simply put, go and tell others what I have done for you. A lot of people say, I don't know how to share my faith. Just go and tell people what Jesus has done for you. Share with them how he has helped you. Share with them how he has encouraged you. Share with them how his people have done that. You do not have to be an evangelist, a seminary student, a tenured pastor. I'm not against any of those things. You don't have to be those things, though, to share your faith. I am one of all of those things. But what I'm saying is, is the nature of sharing our faith is rooted in this right here. Go and tell them what I have done for you. And so if you've come to this place discouraged today, or you know someone who feels this way, if you're wondering why your life matters in this world, or maybe you're still seeing what Jesus says here about eternal life as a hard-edged truth, you can't get over the fact that his life is offered to the sick. If you can't get past that, I want you to take a minute today as we move into response time to ask God to apply this teaching to the depths of your heart. One of Jesus' motivations to go to the cross was that he wanted you and I to spend eternity with him. Think about that. Eternal life, you know, there's lots of ideas about what this is, but the clearest one in the Bible is that we get to spend eternity with Jesus and our Father and his Spirit. We get to be with him forever. So the offer of eternal life is not that you get to fly around the galaxy on a comet. I've heard people say that. Maybe that's true, and if it is, I will eat crow when we're in heaven. But when I read the scripture, what heaven truly looks like to me is that God has invited us into his presence. We get to be with him. That is what makes heaven heaven. We get to be with him forever without the elements of our flesh or the struggles of sin. In other words, eternal life is God's invitation for you to be with him forever in his personal, relational presence forever. That begins on earth the moment you believe in him and it just grows and grows until the day he takes us home. His words show us he was so serious about this that he was willing to die to make this happen for us. He so longs for us to be in his presence that he dies on the cross to make it so. In other words, Jesus wants you and he wants me to experience his life. And then he wants the natural compulsion, if you will, out of that, is that we have a burden to to share this magnificent truth with others. We desire to help the Christian grow in Jesus by making faith deposits in them, by discipling them, And we desire to see the world around us when God provides us spaces, places, and opportunities. We desire to see those people know Jesus. And so if you have a question about your faith this morning, what it means to know Jesus, or if you are in Jesus but are just numb, or you have a situation in your life right now where you want to share Jesus or you're trying to share Jesus but you don't know how, let us know in those connection cards. We'll follow up with you this week. We'll help you figure that out. We'll we'll invest in a way that we can and try to bring light to this situation. And as we close right now, ask God, what is he saying to you about the gift of eternal life that he has offered you in Jesus? And and what are you saying to the people that God has purposely put in your life about the gift he wants to offer them? Remember, we receive a gift and pass it on. And we pass it on through our words and our deeds. So I pray in this time of response that you would just genuinely take some time before God to ask him what your life looks like before him and how bright your light is as you try to share it with other people. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, for being so clear and leaving no margin for, uh, for uh, confusion here when it comes to what you came to earth to do. You came to the earth to deal with this hour, your hour. And out of that death, you gave us the ability to have life. 
And so I pray these stories we have been examining about struggle and doubt, it is my prayer, Lord, that we would recognize Mary's greatest contribution to the world around her at that moment is that she is sharing with the people in her life the way you have worked in her life. And I pray, Lord, that we would, we would truly have that same level of simplicity but passion with that idea. It's a simple reality, how you work in our lives, but it's one that is meant to be bathed in passion. And so it is our desire this morning that as we look at our lives in you, as we move into this time of response before we get on with our day and go back into our circles of influence, that you would genuinely show us who you are. Help us to understand the significant deposit you've made in our lives because of Jesus. And above all else, God, today, help us to recognize and see with great sensitivity the ways we can bless people in your name that are without Jesus are far from him, or just need an encouraging touch because they are in him. We thank you, God, for your son, and we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.